This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, progressive news without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener, and today we'll be talking about the late, great Gore Vidal, essayist, novelist, political candidate, and talker. Our guest is Jay Perini. Gore asked him to write his biography, and the book is out now. Also, we'll talk about guns in America with Amy Wilentz. But first, the progressive honor roll for 2015... From The Nation magazine, it's an annual feature, one of the highlights of the end of every year. For that, we turn to John Nichols. He's National Affairs Correspondent for The Nation, and his most recent book is Dollarocracy. John, welcome to the program. It's great to be with you, John. Next year, the podcast will be on the honor roll. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you very much. This is one of my favorite things in The Nation all year long, and this year it's so interesting I want to start not with the political elective uh, candidates, but with the most valuable activist. To pick the most valuable activist uh, of the year is a tough one. Who did you pick? Well, it's, it's incredibly hard, and it's terribly unfair, right? Because we know there are thousands of people going out every day uh, doing immense amounts of work. Uh, so it's, in a way, we pick someone who's sort of a representative of a struggle, and in this year, we picked Cecile Richards from uh, uh, Planned Parenthood. And I thought it was a pretty easy pick because here was somebody who was attacked uh, by the right-wing media machine. She was attacked, and she and her group were attacked uh, in the Republican debates. She was dragged before Congress for a marathon session in which she saw literally the worst behaviors of the Republicans in Congress. And... Uh, then you had a horrible incident out in Colorado, uh, the shooting up of a Planned Parenthood clinic. And she led the uh, a really tremendous campaign, uh, which was based around the, the message that we're still open, that the doors are still open. And so throughout the year, uh, you saw Cecile really battling, uh, not just to push back on the right, uh, and to push back on anti-choice forces, but also to, to lay down a marker to say that um, reproductive rights, uh, women's health, are going to be defended and asserted in these times. Your progressive honor roll of 2015, you have another category. You know, a lot of people have, like, best movies, best restaurant meals. You have one most valuable ideological comeback. Great category. Who's the winner? Well, that was an easy one. That was democratic socialism. All right. And 
and it, this was the year, 2015, the year of democratic socialism, although certainly Bernie Sanders' backers, I think, will, would hope that 2016 will be the year. Um, but what you saw in 2015 was, was a lot of remarkable energy around the word socialism. Now, this is nothing new in America. A hundred years ago, uh, democratic socialism was all over the place. In hundreds of newspapers, dailies and weeklies, magazines, you had democratic socialists getting elected to Congress, uh, serving as mayors of big cities, literally forming the opposition in state legislatures. So democratic socialism was very alive in America as a real alternative a hundred years ago. And then uh, as many of the ideas got adopted into the mainstream of our politics, social security, public education, Medicare, Medicaid, host of other initiatives, civil rights itself, although not purely a socialist initiative, one that was initially uh, championed by socialists like Norman Thomas. As these ideas began to come into the mainstream, we saw less and less talk of democratic socialism. Now, in 2015, and I think really over the last few years, in response to the economic meltdown of 2008 and so many other developments, we've seen democratic socialism make a comeback. It polls very, very well, especially among young people, but also among a lot of other folks. You have new, vibrant magazines like Jacobin, which are uh, arguing very uh, passionately for socialist ideals. You have Shama Sawant serving on the city council in Seattle and really uh, I think providing an example at the local level of what a democratic socialist elected official might do. And of course, last but certainly not least, you have Bernie Sanders running for president in the democratic primaries as someone who unapologetically identifies as a democratic socialist and in November uh, gave a speech at Georgetown laying out a democratic socialist vision for the United States. And John Nichols, your progressive honor roll of 2015 has uh, another, uh, let's call it, unusual category on a year-end best list, most valuable intervention. Who did you list for most valuable intervention? Well, I, I, I don't think it'll surprise too many folks. It was Black Lives Matter. And it was particularly the, uh, the incident, if you want to call it that, at Netroots Nation down in Arizona when Black Lives Matter activists challenged Bernie Sanders and Martin O'Malley uh, to address issues of police violence, mass incarceration, their own records, uh, in a more aggressive and more consistent manner. Uh, later, you also saw Black Lives Matter activists meet with and, and post challenges to Hillary Clinton as well. And what I suggest there is that the great uh, activist, per, I, I argue, perhaps the greatest activist of the 20th century in the U.S., A. Philip Randolph, whose activism began in the teens and, and lasted uh, into the 1970s, A. Philip Randolph always argued that the most important challenges were not to those who were fully opposed to you, but often to those who were sympathetic but perhaps not doing as much as you wanted them to do. And so Black Lives Matter activists uh, mounted challenges to Bernie Sanders and to Martin O'Malley, both of whom expressed a great deal of sympathy, but in the views of the activists were not saying enough. Now, it's very, very interesting that within short order, despite the fact that some backers of uh, Sanders and O'Malley and, and even Clinton ultimately were uncomfortable with the challenges, in short order you saw all three candidates naming names of people who had been killed or speaking very bluntly about mass incarceration, developing plans and putting them forward. And so I think you saw a, a Philip Randolph-style intervention, one that challenged uh, relatively sympathetic folks to, to really speak up. 
And I think it was very profound. In the last few uh, weeks of the year, we we are deluged with uh, requests for contributions from the many excellent uh, groups that uh, engage in humanitarian relief. Another one that's really hard to pick a number one group. Who did you pick as the most valuable humanitarians of 2015? I looked at the International Rescue Committee, uh, the IRC. It's an old group that has roots uh, going back the better part of a century. In America, the group has been particularly active uh, you know, since the 1930s when Albert Einstein and others said that it was needed to help uh, refugees from Europe make it to America, particularly Jewish refugees. Uh, in 2015, the IRC stepped up in some very profound ways to go beyond the debate about relocating Syrian refugees uh, particularly Muslims, but also Christians coming out of uh, Syria. And when I say particularly Muslims, it's not to divide there along religion, but it's to say because there was so much pushback yes. against Muslim refugees. The IRC stepped up and said, no, these are human beings that need homes, that they, they have qualified to make it uh, into this country, and we're going to help them to relocate. They got tremendous pushback from Republican governors in a number of states around the country. But the IRC stepped up, uh, working with the ACLU and other groups uh, in the courts and in the court of public opinion. And in Texas, where they had particular pushback from the governor on down, the IRC stood its ground. And in early November, or I'm sorry, early December, just a few weeks ago, uh, refugees from Syria began to arrive and resettle in Texas uh, because of the tremendous work of the IRC. I actually have to confess, I didn't know much about the International Rescue Committee until this year and their work with Syrians. So thank you for putting them on, uh, on the list. Well, it's, you know, that's part of what the list is about. It isn't necessarily to always celebrate the folks that most of us know. It's also to highlight folks who are doing tremendous work but not always noticed. And there's some surprises, not only in the categories, but in, but in the, the, the winners, most valuable headlines and covers. This one surprised me. This is easy, though, man. <laughs> if, if you live in New York City, yes. um, it was the New York Daily News. And the Daily News is an old-school uh, urban tabloid. Uh, I think it does very good quality journalism, and they, they have won a lot of awards over the years. So they're not a, uh, they're not a throwaway tabloid. They're a very serious one. But, boy, did they go for it with their front pages in 2015. Their target was the National Rifle Association and gun manufacturers, and they pulled absolutely no punches. They also called out politicians who uh, sometimes resort to, you know, sort of pat lines rather than, than addressing the issue. They put people's faces on the front page. They quoted uh, statements that they didn't believe were sufficient. And they even put the head of the NRA on the front page and compared him to a terrorist. Yeah, we don't see much of this since we're not in New York, unless somebody posted on Facebook. And there are so many amazing things the New York Daily News has done this year. It's, it's kind of amazing. And, and especially when you remember, this is a mass circulation daily newspaper. It's one of the largest daily newspapers in the country. Yeah. Uh, you you are one of the few people who also has uh, on their 10 best list, most valuable union victory. What, what was the most valuable union victory of 2015? Well, that was easy. Again, uh, there's so many good union activities, and, and I, especially somebody who covers a lot of labor, I, 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 the only hard part is picking among the many 
tremendous efforts that labor is involved in every year. But this year I was particularly struck by the United Auto Workers because they got beat a year ago, a little over a year ago, in trying to organize the Volkswagen plant down in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And so everybody, you know, all this media wrote sort of obituaries of organized labor in the South. They said labor just cannot win in the South. Well, the UAW didn't let go. They kept organizing. They kept people on the ground. And toward the end of 2015, they successfully organized a section of workers at the Volkswagen plant down in Tennessee. At the same time, they organized some other plants across the South, uh, some real breakthrough victories. And they're starting to prove that you can do industrial organizing in the right-to-work, anti-labor South, across lines of race and class, rural and urban. And I can't tell you they're winning every fight, and they wouldn't suggest it, but they're going into very tough places. And the other thing that I was struck by with the UAW is they, they had a strike in Wisconsin, my home state, against the Kohler Company. And what was fascinating about their strike there was you had senior workers, people who had been there sometimes 20, 30 years, out on the picket lines trying to raise wages for new hires because they had a two-tier wage system. And the Kohler strikers took almost 2,000 people out uh, for the better part of a month, and they didn't win everything they sought, but they got a, a significant step up in the wage floor for new hires. They got a lot of other protections, and uh, it was, you know, in Scott Walker's home state, they had a significant labor victory. Fantastic story. Sorry, we're out of time. There is a lot more to the Progressive Honor Roll of 2015. You can read it all at thenation.com. John Nichols, thanks for putting this list together. It's always one of the highlights of the year at The Nation, and thanks for talking with us today. Total pleasure to be with you, John. John Nichols, he's National Affairs Correspondent for The Nation magazine. Now it's time to talk about guns in America. After the terrorist attacks in San Bernardino, liberals have been saying we need to ban assault weapons. Amy Wilentz has been thinking about this. She's a journalist, novelist, and writer, author most recently of the award-winning book Farewell Fred Voodoo, A Letter from Haiti. And she's a longtime contributing editor at The Nation. Amy, welcome. Thanks, John. Do you know anybody who owns a gun? I do. One is an older man who uh, has lived in New Orleans his whole life, and those guns are up in the attic in a specially locked showcase. They're old guns, pre-Civil War, Civil War. They're like antique heirloom things. I don't think he fires them often, but I think he used to go up there and look at them lovingly. And the other one? The other one is my peer. His kids go to progressive private schools. He's from New York. And so the other day... You and I had talked about this a little bit, and I went up to him. I saw him at something, and I went up to him, and I said, wait, so you have you have guns, right? Because the mothers in the class where our the children were both enrolled, they wouldn't send their kids sometimes to his house because they knew he had a gun. And he said, yep. <laughs> and this is not a conservative, by the way. This is not a Southerner. This is a progressive New Yorker. And I said, but you keep them in like a locked cabinet and they are heirlooms, right? And he said, mm, no, no, actually, I keep them under my bed. <laughs> under his bed. But I would like to say in my friend's favor for all of you who recognize him out in the listening audience <laughs> that uh, his kids are now grown. Okay. So it's unlikely to cause problems. I'm not sure if when they were toddlers, the 
the guns were under the bed. Well, of course, the the fantasy of everyone who has uh, guns under the bed or uh, in their top dresser drawer is that they are going to shoot an intruder. So I want to speak to this issue because I was recently talking to someone who I met, so I wouldn't say I know this person who has a gun. He said he has – he does – you know, skeet shooting and practicing, and he likes target practice. He said he has several dozen friends and acquaintances who own guns. This is, I think he's from Virginia. And they have them for personal safety, he says. And he's known these people for a long time. They're in his friendship group. And he said, none of them has ever used them to protect themselves, ever, ever, ever. They buy them for personal security, but they never. And he says this is the norm in gun ownership, People don't really ever have to use them for personal security. They don't get to use them for personal security. But he did say that he had one friend who did use the gun for personal security. Some Someone broke into the house, and he came, and he began shooting as these people ran away, and he missed everyone. And he said later that it was the greatest thing in his life that he had missed them because they turned out to be kids. Uh, of course, we know that... Most house burglars, one of the rules of house burglars is break into an empty house because that's the way you can steal things. If someone is home, you go to a different house or you come back later. And we also know that one of the things that house burglars uh, are looking for is guns. That's the one of the main places criminals get guns is stealing them That's right. burglarizing houses. In fact, this guy said that um, he had another friend who didn't have much except guns and People broke in, and all they stole were his guns. <laughs> and one of the other things we know about guns is the main victims of guns in the home are suicide victims. Two-thirds of all people who die of gunshots are people who commit suicide. That's a good reason not to have uh, loaded guns at home. And then the second biggest category is other family members. An angry uh, man shoots his wife or girlfriend. Uh, the kid picks up the gun and shoots a parent. Uh, the chances of shooting an intruder are almost zero. And, and of course, one of the other things, I, I'm very glad that you told that story because one of the biggest questions that gun owners have to ask themselves is, do I really want to kill this person? The law says, the law in every state says, that guns are not instruments of justice. They are only instruments of self-defense. Right. No revenge, only self-protection. And even if someone is breaking into your house, you have to ask yourself the question, do I want to shoot this person? I may kill them. Do I really want to kill somebody? Well, yes, and it depends on how threatened you feel. And I think, you know, in a climate of fear, people feel maybe more threatened. But then you do have to ask yourself that question. He's coming into my house to steal things. Do I have the right to end his life for that reason? Yeah. But he's taking the risk, of course. And then the next question that gun owners have to ask themselves is, if I do shoot and maybe kill uh, an intruder, what happens then? My neighbors are calling 911, gunshots heard, the police are coming to my house, they're looking for a man with a gun, <laughs> I'm standing here with a gun. Right, and then you're, you're the victim of uh, the justice state, so you have to be careful of that. What liberals, our friends, have 
proposed at the top of all liberal uh, uh, gun control lists is uh, banning the so-called assault rifle. This is the weapon used by the San Bernardino shooters, by by most of the other mass killings in the United States. But what the gun uh, defenders say is that those guns, the AR-15 and its equivalent uh, guns, kill almost nobody in America. By far, the great majority of victims of gun violence are killed by handguns. Yeah, but this is all a straw argument, frankly. Why are we fighting with each other on whether we should ban handguns, which are used in personal rivalries and used in poorer neighborhoods and are cheaper than assault weapons, or should we ban assault weapons? Is it really an either-or question? You know, it's only because we're so cowed by the gun industry that we're even having the conversation. Well, okay, we can have handguns where you can kill your neighbor or your kid or your mother or your wife, but let's not have assault weapons where you can kill 20 strangers. No, obviously we shouldn't have either. It's just the more hideous caricature of the American persona that revolts us when we think about the AK-47 in the hands of, you know, crazy people in the movie theater. And the other thing that, let's call them gun rights people, say about the AK-47 is um, it's not the most powerful rifle you can buy in the United States. You can buy hunting rifles that shoot bigger bullets farther and just as fast, and therefore there's a kind of a fetishism around this combat weapon but it's not the most powerful weapon that uh, that is legal, even in California. The discussion is so crazy, really. Um, I just think about, you know, why do you need a more powerful weapon than the AK-47 to shoot deer? Yeah. You know, what are you going out to shoot? And isn't it another aspect of the macho, uh, let's call them gun owners, that they want these super weapons to kill animals in the wild. I mean, it's just another mm-hmm. aspect of the whole have, have you, weirdness. Have you, Amy Willance, ever shot guns? Yes, I have. But it's so wimpy, I don't like to admit it in <laughs> front us. of our gun-owning listenership of two or three. <laughs> yeah, I went skeet shooting. Um, and I missed everything. And, it, and that <laughs> I was that. injured myself, you know, <laughs> hurt my shoulder. There are 300 million guns in the United States now. That's about... That's one gun for every American. I would like to ask our gun uh, rights friends, how many more guns do we need? Harper's Index had a fascinating uh, number this month. Estimated number of guns in the average gun-owning household in the United States. In 1994, it was 4.5. Today, 8.2. The average household that has a gun, has more than eight guns. It's really interesting because when you hear about the the big shootings and you hear they were stockpiling weapons in their homes, well, probably the average American thinks, yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. No, the San Bernardino shooters had two, two um, assault rifles and two pistols. That's below average for gun-owning households in America. What were they thinking? They <laughs> lived downstairs from the mother. They should have had 16 guns. <laughs> Republicans blame mental illness for mass shooting. They say that's the real problem in America, and and we should focus on mental illness and not on guns. What do you think about that? Well, I just look at what Republicans want. So they want us to focus on mental illness, not guns. They don't want background checks, and they don't – 
interestingly, really want to stop people on the terrorist list from having assault weapons. I just look at whatever they want and I think, okay, so they are simply a tool of the gun industry. And so that leads me to believe that the gun industry is cool with uh, mental patients being uh, denied guns because there just aren't that many who are a problem, so it won't affect their bottom line. But the terrorist list, maybe that would affect their bottom line. Uh, the background check, that might affect the bottom line. But you, it's hard for me to even tolerate the arguments. The background check is almost universally favored in America. Something like 87% of everybody supports background checks before you buy a gun. Great, significant majority of Republicans, something like 70% support background checks. A consensus. But how do background checks work in America today? My friend Mark, my gun-owning friend Mark, has a big complaint about what the NRA and its supporters have done with the background check. If you go to a gun store today, you have to fill out the background check application. And it's a long, thorough, it's a very thorough thing. Uh, and then the gun store sends it to the ATF, part of the Justice Department, to check you. And they have three days to do that. After three days, the law requires that the ATF destroy the information on your application. Either they have to approve you or disapprove you, and then they're required to destroy the information so, that, so there can be no national registry of people who have applied to own guns. This is because of this right-wing fantasy that the jackbooted stormtroopers right. of Obama are going to come to are going to get out the list, come to your house, and take your eight point five guns. Actually, it's not because of that. It's because that mindset is so prevalent among NRA members that the NRA has made that a part of the gun lobby's uh, hopes and dreams and gotten it into legislation. Let me tell you my utopia. Since we already have three hundred million guns in America, since there are eight million assault weapons in the hands of a private Americans since the average gun owning household has more than eight guns. It's going to be hard to retrieve all these guns. Here's my utopia. Guns should be regulated like cars. There should be a license for every gun. Every time a gun is transferred, you have to report it to the officials so the officials know who is the owner of every gun? And then if a gun is used in a crime, they can trace it back and see whose gun it was. Every operator of a gun should have a license, should have to pass a written test and, and a test of use. Park your gun. Uh, <laughs> you have to be able to park your gun safely. And these tests have to be renewed and you have to qualify. I think this is great. And this is obviously something that should happen if we can't just get rid of guns. And you can't – once you've allowed them to be dispersed so widely in a population that's so gigantic, it's really – unless you provide gigantic incentives and even then because it's a psychological thing that leads people to want guns as well as hunting and killing people in movie theaters. Um, but another thing I think – that should resemble the auto industry is that the gun industry should be liable. And they're not. The auto industry is liable. Every other industry is liable. But guns, because they kill people, uh, they're not. They have a special dispensation so that you can't sue Smith and Wesson and Glock and all the other yeah. uh, companies that that make these weapons that people then – so if it were regulated, then maybe the gun companies wouldn't mind so much if they were – liable for the damages. Great idea. 
We're out of time. Thanks so much for coming in to talk about guns. Thank you, John. Amy Wallance, she's a longtime contributing editor at The Nation. Now it's time to talk about Gore Vidal, one of our greats. He wrote novels and essays and screenplays. He appeared on TV and in the movies and in lecture halls across America. Before he died in 2012, he asked Jay Perini to write his biography. And now the book is out. It's called Empire of Self, A Life of Gore Vidal. And it's the product of 30 years of friendship and conversation. Jay Perini is a poet and novelist as well as a biographer. He's written biographies of Robert Frost, John Steinbeck, William Faulkner, and Jesus. And his writing has been translated into more than 30 languages. He teaches English at Middlebury College in Vermont. Jay Perini, welcome to the program. John, thanks for having me on your show. It's good to be here. Well, you declare at the outset of the book that your goal in writing about Gore Vidal, quote, has been to look at the angel and the monster alike, close quote. Uh, Briefly, what was angelic about Gore and what was monstrous? You know, I was just telling someone this morning, they said, what was it like to stay friends with Gore for 30 years? And I said it was a bit like walking on hot paving stones and bare feet. Mm. Um, You know, he could be very prickly, very touchy. Um, And I think this combined with his exquisite um, mind, um, he was deeply learned. He had so much in his head. Um, I was always stunned by his range of reference. There was just nowhere you could go that you could go that he couldn't go ten times deeper. He had a kind of encyclopedic mind, and he had a, a systematic way of looking at world politics and literature. So, um, and he and he was actually one on one a very kind man, and I personally found him with me. Uh, you know, and, we, and this often entailed uh, daily phone calls for over a decade. We talked on the phone. Um, very kind. He would call and he'd say, how are things going? How is your family? This sort of thing. So Gore and I were, you know, I found him very friendly as, as a human being, very generous. But he could also be prickly as hell, difficult, touchy. And uh, I saw it especially with other people. He could be really uh, mean-spirited at times. Everybody knows that. They've, they've heard about his quarrels with Truman Capote, Norman Miller, you name it, William F. Buckley. You can see him on TV. He's he's pugnacious, and so that's just that's part of the. So the monstrous side was this uh, Vidal mask he would put on, which would be very prickly, difficult, pugnacious, and the angelic side was uh, the, the the generous friend, and uh, the man with a very um, astonishing intelligence. Well, to my mind, he did some angelic writing, especially his essays against the national security state and against the American empire. And most of those essays were written for The Nation magazine, where he published, I think, 41 essays starting in 1981. The first piece he published at The Nation was titled Some Jews and the Gays. Is it fair to call that one controversial? (laughs) You know, obviously, um, Gore set off alarm bells all over the world with, with those kinds of essays. And some Jews and the gays. I mean, uh, Gore understood that Jews and gays, in many ways, are 
outside the system, and he identified with people who were outside the system. And his work, his political work as a writer, his political work as an activist, was to identify those outside the system and to, and to understand the system and see how they got there and to try to help them. So Gore was, um, you know, some Jews and the gays, you know, had, you know, touched off, as I said, alarm bells. And he continued in that vein of writing. I mean, Pink Triangle, Yellow Star is, is a dramatically um, wonderful essay um, talking about the whole issue of, you know, um, Jews and gays being pushed out onto to the margins of society. And another of his key essays he wrote as the Soviet Union was collapsing in 1989, uh, he wrote that the United States would still need an enemy number one to justify the existence of the national security uh, state. And and he foresaw that the Islamic world and the Arabs in particular would become the new evil empire. That certainly was prescient. It was prescient. I remember in the mid-'80s, standing with Gore in Ravello on the highest um, terrace of his five-story house one night when the bombs went overhead, the bombers went overhead to Libya. And Gore said, there go Reagan's bombers. We'll soon be at war with the Islamic world. It will take the place of the Soviet empire. Watch it. I mean, he, he saw that so clearly. And what I, what I give him a lot of credit for was his prescience. He really understood uh, dynamics of society and how the national security state requires that we have an enemy that we just fight against tooth and nail all the time. Gore wrote a lot, something like 50 books. I, I guess it was easy for him to write. Well, I... Yeah, I think it was easy for him to write. <clears throat> it came naturally to him. He didn't struggle. He didn't have writer's block. Um, he just, he once said to me a famous line, he said, if, whenever I sense writer's block coming on, I simply lower my standards. <laughs> <laughs> and he had, didn't have to lower them very, very, very much. He, and, and he was able to then screw them up to a very high standard again and again. I, I still think his essays are his uh, absolutely top flight work and that they'll be remembered in, in hundreds of years as, as, as a classic American voice of the 20th, late 20th century. And Gore wrote one of the first novels about love between men, The City and the Pillar, in 1949. During his life, he had a lot of sex with men. Is, is that a fair statement? Yeah, you know, Gore was obviously very gay. He, he once told me he'd had a thousand love affairs. He, he had sex with a thousand men. By the time he was 25, I think that was an exaggeration. But I think he, you know, perpetually sought out sex with men. He had a lot of sex with men, but he never wanted to identify as gay or yeah. or be part of the gay liberation movement. He could have been one of the founders. He was, despite all, one of the heroes for the city and the pillar. Why, why didn't he want to uh, identify as gay or be part of the gay liberation movement? He used to say to me that he hated the idea that anybody would be identified by their sexuality. He said it's irrelevant, you know, where, what one does with one's private parts. I loved it in the 80s. He always said um, Reagan wanted to get the governments off our backs. He wanted to get the government off our fronts. <laughs> and uh, and uh, he wanted everybody off his front. He didn't want to talk about it. Um, you know, we talked about it privately, but he didn't really want to talk about his sexuality. And he did have this very interesting insight that, uh, you know, the Kinsey report brought it up, that most people uh, exist somewhere on a spectrum 
with gay, total gay on one side and total straight on the other side. But very few people are either one or the other in, in, in an extreme way. Everybody has, or most people will have thoughts that are, you know, wander this way or that way. And Gore's thoughts wandered a, a bit toward the heterosexual side now and then. He'd had a couple of affairs with women. I don't think they were very satisfying to him. But it just didn't interest him very much. And, um, you know, I think he missed the boat a little bit on the, on the whole a- period of AIDS. And it wasn't until his, his very beloved nephew died of AIDS that he was deeply moved and struck by the gravity of the situation. He somehow had, um, you know, it was one of the rare blind spots in his career where he just didn't understand, uh, you know, you know the, the necessity for gay men to stand up and fight. I want to ask about Gore Vidal in politics. He ran for Congress from New York in 1960, and he ran for the Senate from California in 1982. Would you say he was a serious candidate? You know, he was fairly serious when he ran for the House. Um, a Republican um, had almost always won Dutchess County in those days, and Gore knew it was going to be an uphill fight. And he did better than any Democrat had, had done in many, many, many election cycles in Dutchess County. Um, I think he was also serious when he ran. It was actually for Senate in California in the early 80s. And I think he, uh, you know, really imagined seeing himself in the Senate. He wanted to be a great orator, like orator like his grandfather, Senator Thomas Pryor Gore. And I think he had a fantasy of himself at the podium in the Senate chambers, holding forth on the national security state. But it was just a fantasy, and uh, I can't imagine Gore doing the kind of day-to-day work of governing. Gore Vidal knew everybody. The The list of celebrities who are named in your book is is pretty mind-boggling. But, but still, there are surprises in your account of his social life. In 1994, at his house in Italy, you report that his guests included Hillary and Chelsea. Chelsea was, I think, four years old at the time. <laughs> Bill was president at the time. So this is the first lady of the United States. Uh, any idea how that visit went? Well, yes, I have a lot of idea how it went. In fact, it came about because of me. I had um, been talking, I had had a conversation with the Clintons a couple of years earlier and talked a little bit about Gore. And Hillary was very interested. And then I ran into Hillary's, um, oh, one of her press secretaries a while, a, a little while later at some dinner party. And she said she, Hillary was very interested and, uh, in meeting Gore and mentioned that they were going to Italy. And I suggested she go and have a lunch with Gore. And I sort of set up that uh, event. And so Gore, I remember calling Gore and saying, Gore, um, any chance you would be willing to have the first lady, uh, for lunch? She was thrilled. You know, he called soon after the lunch and reported on the uh, affair and said it had gone very well. She was charming. And he said to me, one day she will be president herself. Once again, Gore was right on the mark. <laughs> Jay Perini, his book is Empire of Self, A Life of Gore Vidal. Thank you, Jay. Thank you very much, John. That's it for today. I want to thank our other guest, John Nichols. He presented the Progressive Honor Roll for 2015. And we talked about guns with Amy Wilentz. Start Making Sense, the Nation podcast, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded and edited by Jerry Gorin and Ernesto Oriano at Emerson College, Los Angeles, which offers a range of courses from social media marketing to TV writing. Find out more at emerson.edu. 
Our senior producer at Start Making Sense is Alan Minsky. Our executive producer is Frank Reynolds. Katrina Vandenhuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense on iTunes or at Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.